Thank you, Casey. Maybe <clears throat> be seated. Take your Bibles. Please and turn with me to John chapter 1. I think we're in our eighth week in John chapter 1. We'll finish up this week, Lord willing, and move on. I think at this pace we're looking at 150 sermons in John's gospel. Uh, I don't think there's actually going to be 150 sermons, but it's just, I'm just saying the pace, you know. So, uh, uh, But it's been, uh, it's a good, just so, so rich. I hope uh, you're getting as much out of this as I am. So today we're looking at verses 43 to 51 as we uh, consider ordinary men for an extraordinary calling, how God works in us and in his people and works to build his church. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by his spirit. Read verses 43 to 51. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he bind it to our hearts. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, what a privilege it is to consider your word, to consider this text in John. Lord, I pray you would use it as an x-ray machine of our souls to, to point out sin and areas in which we need to put sin to death, God, and to point out to those who do not know you that they do not know you, and God, I pray that today they would become disciples of Jesus, that you would work in their hearts, that you would bring about repentance, you bring about faith, and God, I pray you do that, you do that through your word and by the power of your spirit, so pour out your spirit now on us as we study this text, and give us grace to leave here transformed by the changing of our hearts and renewing our minds, able, willing, desirous, passionate to live out every moment for your glory. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, risen Lord. Amen. So what kind of people does God use to build his kingdom? You know, the Bible basically tells us, the New Testament tells us that you and nine, people are the raw materials that make up God's kingdom. What kind of people? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to, I want to read this, and I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we move through this, uh, uh, this narrative this morning of Jesus choosing two more of his disciples. So, and, and I think this is something we can all stand to keep in mind, especially in the church in our country. Listen to this, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that, and you underline this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This, these are the kinds of people God uses to build his kingdom. He uses people like us. He raises up, he saves people like us. He saves sinners, right? People like us, people who, 
Our, our calling, and I think it's calling, here's the salvation, the effectual call. We're not wise according to the world. Not many of us here are blue bloods. Not many of us run Fortune 500 companies. Not many of us will be movie stars. Not many of us will be millionaires. Not many of us will be scholars. And yet he chose us. We're the raw materials God uses to build his church. And I don't want this, I want this, I want this to sort of soak into our, our bones as we think about this text this morning. As God calls two more of his disciples. And I want, to, I want to think about, like I said, we're going to return to that. But I want to think about the disciples calling, first of all, to clear up any confusion. Well, John MacArthur makes this clear, and I think this is helpful to us, to think about the disciples calling because there's, we read of him raising up disciples in two or three different places. And you think, well, what's, is this repetitive? Is this redundancy? What is that? Well, um, Lord, the Lord calls these five disciples, with three last week and two this week, and of course 12 and the other gospels, we have lists. But what we have here in John 1, in last week's sermon of him calling Andrew and John, and of course, by extension, Peter as well, and also this week, Philip and Nathaniel, is what John MacArthur calls phase one of their calling, and that is the calling to the conversion to Christ. And of course, that's where you come into the kingdom, right? We all come into the kingdom. Here's stage one. We're converted. We're called. The effectual call goes out. Our hearts are changed. We're drawn to him irresistibly. We're drawn effectually, and we're saved. And that's sort of phase one. And of course, for these disciples, it did not yet involve full-time discipleship. I mean, the gospel narrative suggests that although they followed Jesus in the sense that they gladly heard his teaching and submitted to him as their teacher, they remained in their full-time jobs. They were fishermen. They were lawyers. They were tax collectors. They, they were full-time in whatever they were doing. Kind of like most of us, right? But followers nonetheless. And until Jesus calls them to full-time ministry, we also see them fishing, amending their nets, or collecting taxes, all the things they do. Which is the kinds of things you do, right? Phase two, the call to ministry, was a call to ministry. We read last week in Matthew 4.19 where Jesus directed some of the disciples who were fishing to let down their nets for a miraculous catch of fish. Remember that? Told us how many there were. God's omniscience. And they caught so many, and I love this, almost humorous, their boat nearly sank. You want a bunch of fish? You want to catch fish? Jake, you love this, don't you? Their boat nearly sank, right? So many. And Jesus said to them, follow me. In the context of that story, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He uses that as an illustration object lesson, right? He's calling them to full-time ministry. And they followed him full-time. They left their vocations. They left their jobs. They followed Jesus full-time. This is what some of you have done. This is what I've done. I had a friend in seminary. Worked for a Fortune 500 company. Made about $350,000 a year. Got called into ministry. About a month later, he left that company. Left it all behind and came to seminary. Now he's an effective biblical counselor, a godly manager, writes books about biblical counseling. But he left this major corporation, uh, this major salary, and followed Jesus. He just left it all. Of course, a lot of you know my story. I was a journalist, news and sports for many years, and a lot of privileges. God gave me a lot of wonderful opportunities. Got to interview a couple of presidents, got to cover the World Series. There's some things that people usually pay to do. It was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Then God called me to ministry, and by God's grace, we left, and here we are. You say for better or worse, right? <laughs> here we are. And that's what these disciples are called to do. And some of you, God will call some of you to do that. You'll abandon everything, no matter how great, no matter how lucrative, no matter what it is, and you'll follow him in full-time ministry. So that's what these disciples, they, they will be called to do. In the third phase of the disciples' ministry is a calling to apostleship. None of you will be called to apostleship. I am not a call to apostleship, although I met an apostle one time in a hospital, and this lady assured me she was married to an apostle, and I met him. His name was John. I don't think he was an apostle, but I think he thinks he was an apostle. And I thought it was really cool that I had met an apostle. So maybe someday you'll meet an apostle. But I guarantee you, you won't be meeting an apostle. There are no more of those, right? There were 12 of those, and that is it. 11 when apostatized. So those are the phases. Just kind of get, it helps us get our bearings and walk through this. Because you have four gospels, it can be a little bit confusing sometimes. So really three phases. I think that's important to trace out, kind of to tell us kind of where we are. Like how is this different from the, you know, when he calls the 12 and all that. So that hopefully help, that helps us straighten that out. I needed that for my mind to sort of get moving forward. Because I used to be a journalist, I like everything in order, right? All the punctuation, I like all that stuff just right. And I hope you do too. I hope that helps you. I mean, history records that all of them but one were killed for their testimony to Christ. 
So they died for the sake of the gospel. Now, some of you may be called to do that. MacArthur says there's a call to martyrdom for, some, for, for, some, for them, and maybe it will be for us too. Who knows, right? I don't think it's going to be as easy to be Christians in the United States of America in coming years, witness the Roe versus Wade decision being soon to be overturned, we hope and pray, but witness how that's being received. And that's how your faith is going to be seized as, received. You'll be seen as archaic. Not, not good because now the generation now sees the Christian faith as something toxic. My generation, we wondered, is it true? Younger generation, some of you who are like, you know, maybe next generation behind me, you wonder, your generation wonders, is it good? Because they wonder, is it good? If it's not good, it's usually not seen as good, then they'll try to stamp it out. And so we may be called to martyrdom, right? We shall see. So this week, Jesus calls two more of his first band of disciples, and here's the first one. We meet Philip, the calling of Philip. And I'm going to say Jesus, kind of a way of application, we'll get to this, why I'm, why, I'm, why I'm phrasing it this way, but my first point, Jesus saves some people directly by his word, and we see that with Philip. He just says, follow me. And what happens? He follows him. We see no hesitation. That was one of my points last week. Disciples, we follow without a lot of hesitation, right, typically. Jesus took the initiative in calling Philip. Of course, we know that from a, 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 from a spiritual perspective, from an eternal perspective, from God's point of view, we're all called this way, right? We hear God's word and we're all supernaturally drawn by the Spirit. This is the way every one of us came into the kingdom, right? John 6, 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus merely called to Philip, Follow me, and he follows him. Who is Philip. Well, Philip is a good old boy. He's from Bethsaida, a fishing village on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's almost certain he was a fisherman, been called a fish for men later. It was also Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, we learn. So they were friends, no doubt. Small town, you know everybody, right? A lot of you are from small towns like I am. You know everybody, they knew each other. But because of how Jesus described, or, or how he described Jesus in verse 45, it's clear that he'd already been a faithful, and I'm going to use this word, true seeker, only, and yes, only seeking because he was sought, but a seeker who was a devoted student of the Word of God. Because he said, we have found, and this is a profound statement, we're going to come back to it, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Here he is. Here's the Messiah. He must have known Scripture. He must have known sound doctrine. He must have known theology profoundly already to know that, right? We found him. So Philip understands Jesus to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I mean, like Andrew, Philip could not keep the good news about Jesus to himself. So he immediately went and found his close friend, Nathaniel. As one commentator puts it, one lighted torch serves to light another. Thus faith propagates itself. And we talked about that last week, how some of us, when we first got saved, man, we couldn't wait to tell the whole world. We want to evangelize everybody. We want to be the next Billy Graham, right? We want to go tell everybody. And how I'm afraid with some of us, and I know it's true of me sometimes, that that fire kind of goes out. That fire that was shut up in our bones is kind of going, you know, it's going, kind of running low, burning low now. That was last week's sermon. We move on. So Philip had a heart of the personal evangelist. And I think he shows us the best way to do evangelism here is through relationships. We're going to discuss that a little bit later too. I'm kind of previewing the latter part of the sermon here. But Philip understands this, this Jesus to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And this shows us here how we put our Bibles together, right? We understand the Old Testament how? The way the charts tell us to, right? You remember I grew up with those charts, right? Have old charts about the end times, how it's all going to play out. Man, those are really creative. I was, I was not smart enough to understand the charts. No, we understand the Old Testament the way the New Testament writers tell us. I believe the hermeneutic, the method of Bible interpretation, is every bit as much inspired as the text itself. Right here, we get a lesson in that. This is the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote of. And this appears all through the New Testament. This is the Holy Spirit's way of saying the Bible is about Jesus. We teach our children here in elementary school. What do we teach them? What kind of story Bibles is? Well, the story Bibles that put the Bible together that way, right? 
I think sometimes we understand the Bible in ways that keeps people from Jesus, right? I think in some ways, the way I was taught the Bible growing up, because we focused on the rapture and the, all those things, it just really kept me from Jesus. Because it's about Jesus, not the charts. Creative, creativity, A+. Plus. Interpretation, F. Sorry, if you like the charts. It's not what it's about. It's about Jesus. This is what Philip says here is absolutely true. Why did Jesus choose Philip? Well, he's an ordinary fisherman. Nothing, nothing impressive about him, right? Nothing impressive. We hear the echoes of what Paul said. Nothing impressive about him. And like all humans, Philip is weak, and yet God uses him to be what? One of the pillars of the church. Wow. Jesus must have been desperate, right? That's what the world would say. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion in the upper room, we see Philip making a foolish comment. So he's not perfect. We see him make a very ignorant statement on the heels, heels of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does Philip say? He says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus is like, say what? <laughs> You've been walking with me almost three years and you, I've been telling you about the Father, the Father's teaching, and you say, show us the Father. That's the best you can do. That's it. That's all you got. But really, that's who we are, isn't it? I mean, I grew up in church. I was in church. I was in church 27 years before I heard the phrase justification by faith. That is a shame. Maybe I didn't listen. It might have been there. Or maybe I wouldn't Maybe I was drawing or something. I don't know. Maybe not 27. My mother showed me my children's Bible, my first Bible, a few years ago before she died. And she looked, she showed me, and she showed my wife, and we laughed because it was drawn all through, you know. Said he was evidently very bored during the preaching. I don't know. It didn't portend a future. There was a lot of things highlighted in it, so that's a, that's a good thing. But Philip's regular, normal, right? He, he's going to use Philip. He, he doesn't get it. Been with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months and months, years even. How could he ask such an impertinent question as that? Like the other disciples and like us, Philip was a man of limited ability. Do you get that? Okay, you may get a seminary education. You have a bunch of degrees by your name. Yeah, I got a few of those, but you know what? I'm limited. And so are you. Ask me to do math. You'll see my limitations. Start coughing, right? Thankful for people like Monica and do math, right? We have limited ability, we have limited ability right? Philip showed he, he's got limited ability. He's just ordinary, like us. He had weak faith. He was slow to understand, slow to trust, slow to see past his immediate circumstances. So are we. And yet he's one of the apostles upon which Christ built the church. How does he build the church today? You know what I'm getting at, right? It's the same way. It's the same way. So we meet Philip. Next we meet Nathaniel. So Jesus saves some through his word directly. He saves some through the witness of others, the calling of, of Nathaniel here. Nathaniel, by the way, is called Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. Who are the, what are the Synoptic Gospels? Who can tell me what bright student out there can tell me? Synoptics are? There's three of them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Synoptic because they're similar. The other, John's very different. So he's called Bartholomew and the lists... Uh, and any other lists in the Synoptic Gospels. He was, Nathaniel is his given name. Bartholomew, evidently his surname... So his name's always immediately after Philip's in those lists in the Synoptic Gospels, which indicates a close friendship. So he's very, very close. So he goes and tells his best friends, which is what he should do, right about Jesus. He's here. I mean, John's only other mention of Nathaniel uh, notes in John 21, too, that he was from the village of Cana in Galilee, another small town, another fishing village. And how did Nathaniel respond? He say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We've met the Messiah? no. He's brutally honest. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's almost humorous, isn't it? Again, that's the best you can do. The, the, so can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? He's from Nazareth? And you think he must be being a, what Luther called a, a jackanape, which I love that word. I just, I like to say jackanape, right? But a wise acre, smart aleck, right? It's not being a jackanape. No, not being a smart aleck. Not, not at all. His words have nothing to do with his doubts about Jesus, but his doubts that a Messiah could come to, from such a place like a nondescript 
non-famous small town like Nazareth. But that's part of the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? And the, the humiliation of Christ. He was from a, a hick town like Nazareth. Evidently, Philip didn't hold Nazareth in very high regard. Must have been like a football rivalry, right? You know this. You've got a, football, you've got a town you kind of look down on, right? And they look down on you, small towns, where I come from. For us, it's Hiawassee, or it's our Towns County, right? You know this. You know this back there. The <laughs> Brandon and Allison, we kind of look down on them. Like, you know, they're not Blairsville. And you go over there, and they say, you know, they're nothing like us over here. They're a bunch of rednecks. We call each other rednecks. That's really funny, isn't it? Yeah, that's really funny. Come on. It is funny. We call each other that. But that's, that's kind of what's happening here. Nazareth? Are you kidding me? The Messiah, the Savior of the world is from Nazareth? From Blairsville, Georgia? Oak Ridge, Tennessee, right? Little towns all around this land? Yeah, no, no, no. no. They, they, that's what he's saying. Not an impertinent question. He, he really means that. I mean, it's like when a celebrity comes out of a small town, like John Mellencamp over in Seymour, Indiana. I actually saw him over there one time, but he's from Seymour, Indiana. We think, well, he came from a place like that. That's kind of what's going on here. I mean, this gets back to what I, why I read 1 Corinthians 1. God works in ordinary things and ordinary people and from ordinary places. You understand that? And that's really my main point this morning because we're, we happen to be What? Ordinary people, ordinary church, right? We're just a Baptist church, ordinary, ordinary elders, ordinary people. But look what God does with them. He works in ordinary people and ordinary things because that's all he's got to work with, right? We're not God. That's what he has to work with. We're the raw materials. This is it. And so how does Philip respond to his friend? He says, come and see. Come and see this man from Nazareth. So Jesus responds to Nathanael in verses 47, 48. He says, I love this. Verse 47. He says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I like that. Here's an Israelite in whom there is no gall, as the King James puts it. There's no deceit. He is who he is. That's what he's saying. There's no duplicity in him. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He is, he is who he claims to be. He's not out to please man. He's eager instead to examine the claims of Jesus for himself. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, Jesus is saying that Nathaniel is a genuine Israelite. He is truly looking for the Messiah. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a scribe. They're just merely being religious externally, right? All the rites and all the ceremonies. He's saying, this man, Nathaniel Bartholomew, he's the opposite of that. And that's a good thing. There's no deceit in him. The Pharisees, is there deceit in the Pharisees? Absolutely. Is there deceit in much of our external religion? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just external things, religion, right? We... We live in a very highly Roman Catholic city here. And if ever there was an external religion, that's it, right? It's all about the ceremony. Jesus is saying, no, this is a man who doesn't care about the ceremony. He cares about the Messiah. He's not out. He's not afraid of people. And he wants to know him. He's after me. He's going hard after God in contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's what Paul describes in Romans 2, a true Jew inwardly who has undergone not merely physical circumcision, but circumcision of the heart. And Paul redefines there, I want to say, be so bold as to say Jewishness. That's a very important passage, by the way, in understanding the, uh, how Old and New Testament go together. Jewishness is different. You are the true Jews. Did you know that? You're the true Israelites. We are. The church is the fulfillment of that now. That's when we see that in the Old Testament, we think about the church. Think about you and I, the true Jews who have undergone true circumcision. That is circumcision of the heart. Nathaniel's response, of course, in 48, the second part of verse 48, makes clear he was a true disciple from the beginning. It reminds me, I think, of Simeon. You remember Simeon? I preached a sermon a few Christmases ago on Simeon in Luke chapter 2. When baby Jesus was presented at the temple for purification, for the fulfillment of the law, Nathaniel 
was like him because he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's who Nathanael was, waiting for the consolation of Israel. True Jew, a true member of the people of God. Nathanael asked in verse 48, how did you know me? How did you know me? And Jesus' answer startles him. He says, I saw you when you're under the fig tree. To which Nathanael thinks, you were nowhere around here when I was under the fig tree. Is he stalking me? What's going on here? Well, Nathaniel knows immediately what's going on. This is Jesus, an exercise of his omniscience. It's the omniscient one. Fully man, yes, also fully God. I mean, we're not sure what happened under the fig tree, but Jesus knew about it. And his omniscience overwhelms Nathaniel, and it should overwhelm us always. He knows all, he sees all, it should convict us. In his response in verse 39, he confesses, Rabbi, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the Messiah. Those are the two descriptors that Psalm chapter 2 uses to describe the coming Messiah. He is the Son of God. Of course, Son of Man, he's going he's to refer to himself that way in a moment. But he's also the King of Israel. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, his only Son, so this is the same language as Psalm 2. This is who he is. He's come. And then what does Jesus say? Well, the conversation kind of, kind of amps up the conversation. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven. Oh, you'll see greater things. You'll see heaven opened. Angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You think that was, you think that was cool? You think that was groovy? The, the whole affair with the fig tree, you think that was great? You just wait. You're going to see something even greater. And you think, yeah, I know he's going to see blind eyes opened and deaf ears unstopped. And he's going to see the dead raised. And that's true. That's not what Jesus is driving at here. It's why he alludes back to Genesis 28 and the story of Jacob and the, the ladder, Jacob's ladder between heaven and earth, angels ascending and descending, the, the pathway from heaven to earth, right? Jacob, Jacob was the, sort of the forerunner of that. That's the whole point of that. But the forerunner's now come, right? That's why John the Baptist announced him. Jesus is saying, I am the ladder. Jesus is the, the true link. He's saying this, I'm the true link between heaven and earth. And so a far greater miracle you're going to see take place. Salvation, regeneration of hearts that now hate me, they're going to love me. Because I'm going to change their hearts. That's regeneration. That's the true miracle. And don't get over the fact that you've been regenerated. That's the true miracle. It's greater than the, the blind eyes seeing again and the deaf ears hearing again. It's a far greater miracle. Because Jesus is the path from earth to heaven. I mean, Jesus here calls himself, you'll see the son of man. Angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite description of himself. It appears about 80 times or so in the, in the four Gospels and about 13 times in the Gospel of John. It's how Jesus describes himself. And yes, it does speak of his full humanity. But I think he has also in mind here Daniel chapter 7. He's the fulfillment of Daniel 7, that prophecy where the prophet says, the son of man, there's a son of man coming who will reign over a renewed earth and the kingdom that's sent by the ancient of days. Of course, we know it's this kingdom that's yet to come in its fullness. It's come here in Christ. It's come here in the calling of these disciples, but it has not come in its fullness. We await that day, don't we? We await it with expectancy and pray for it, that he will come, and he'll come quickly, but we still wait, don't we? But he's saying, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the ladder. I'm the pathway to heaven. Of course, he's going to say it later. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus using these, Philip and now Nathaniel. Nathaniel, we don't know a lot about Nathaniel, but we know he loves the Bible. Was a person without deceit, without guile. He sees this fulfillment of the Bible, the scriptures, and he immediately responds, right, that this is, and he goes to Jesus. I mean, the only other mention he garners in the New Testament is when the Gospels list all 12 disciples. That's it. It's called Bartholomew again there. But like the other apostles, Nathaniel stands, I think, as proof that God can take the most common people from the most insignificant place and use them for his glory. 
even you, even me, even this church. That's the human, that, that's the bottom line. I think for me, to, for this, this week's sermon, is God uses human weakness to build his all-powerful kingdom. Think of, think of Paul. Think of 2 Corinthians 12. This is my favorite illustration in the Bible. This, you have this, this scene where Paul is, is speaking of thorn in his flesh, of being a vision, being called up to heaven, called up all the way to the third heaven, right? Called up into the presence of God. This vision he had, a vision or a dream, or he was actually transported out of body experience. Not exactly sure what it is, but it's amazing. Not many people, a few of any, besides Paul, have ever experienced that, no matter how many books they write about it. Be careful with those, by the way. Paul's caught up and he said, boy, I was wanted to come back and, you know, you, you, you know there would be an inclination to want to tell everybody. It's the big fish story, you know, I want to tell everybody. He says, but God gave me a thorn in my flesh. So it would show my weakness. But he says this, he says, he gave me a thorn in my flesh and I prayed three times that he'd remove it and he wouldn't remove it. He said, no, no, no. And he says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn it should leave me. But he said to me, and this is for us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There it is. My power, his power made perfect in weakness. And Paul's weakness, the weakness of Philip and Nathaniel and Andrew and, and, and Peter and John. And Paul goes on, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, not my long resume of ministry, right, but my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I am content with, get this, what makes him content? Full bank account? Obedient children? Big house? No. I am content then with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. <laughs> Christianity is not for the faint of heart, is it? Rightly understood. And then he summarizes it this way. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These weak men, God would use these weak men to build his church, to build his kingdom. That's it. Nathaniel, Philip, the apostle Paul. Think about David and Goliath. That's usually preached as how to slay the giants in your life. Right? We all know. That. You've heard that. I've heard that a thousand times in my life. I've heard it growing up. Every time the preacher, he preach it you know, once a year, usually high attendance Sunday. Get in here, we'll promise you the moon, you know, because God's going to make you big because you're little. I'm little, I really resonated with me, being, being uh, vertically challenged as I am. Some of you, we have a short church, we always laugh about that, we really do. When I'm the tallest elder, we have a short church, right? But David and Goliath, no, it's not about that. We always put ourselves in the wrong place sometimes in Scripture. No, it's about these two men, David and Goliath, Two weak men. David realized he's weak and realized that the battle belongs to who? The Lord. They're both weak men. Both David and Goliath, no matter how much taller Goliath was, he was a lot taller. But David realized he was weak. He realized the battle belongs to the Lord, and Goliath didn't. He thought the power was in his sword, but it belonged, the battle belonged to the Lord. And that's true of you, right? In your life, no matter what, I mean, the, the, the true, I think a good application is, yes, you're facing difficulties and challenges, but the battle belongs to the Lord. You have him for every challenge, every difficulty. You can't overcome it. You're too small. You're too little, right? I am too. But the battle belongs to the Lord because he does this through little people. Francis Schaeffer put it this way, no ordinary people, no ordinary places. That's right. Sermon series, go read it, it's glorious. It's about this whole thing. David realized he was completely dependent upon the Lord. Paul realized he's completely dependent upon the Lord. Do you realize you're completely dependent upon the Lord? These men, Philip, Nathaniel, I mean, can you imagine you're minding your own business, you're fishing, the next day you're an apostle, Jesus Christ, or soon, the Savior of the world, you're walking with him. Can you imagine what that must have been like? What an audacious calling that was or how you must have felt. Whoa, I'm not up to this. Of course, we know some of them thought they were up to this. Right? They argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand? Big argument because that's who we are, right? We think 
far too highly of our own righteousness. No one has to tell us, I don't have to tell you you're great and God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know that already, right? Part of my job and Doug's job and Clay's job is to disabuse you of how great you are, right? And to disabuse us of how great we are. That's part of our calling because Scripture does it. You're a little man and little woman, and God, but God can use you anyway because the power and the strength is in Him and the glory belongs to Him and to Him alone. Another thing I want us to see in here just in terms of application is this account corrects our desire for uniformity in the Christian experience. Here's what I mean by that. First, we should not expect every conversion to look the same. I've heard probably all your testimonies if you've joined this church, and they're all different. And that's to God's glory. But I think sometimes we expect them to be the same. Second thing is, I think our evangelism would be greatly helped if we get to know people and not take the hit and run or what I call the marketing approach to evangelism. There's a couple of things here. First of all, there's a variety among conversions. From a human perspective, every conversion and every testimony is different from our perspective, right? From God's perspective, they're very similar. He works, he changes us, he draws us, he effectually calls us, he regenerates us, he grants us faith, he makes our hearts willing to believe. But from our perspective, they're all different, right? As, as different as our, uh, the number of people. I've heard many powerful testimonies of some who were saved out of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, sexual promiscuity, those things. It's powerful to see God bring this, this profligate person out of that lifestyle and into the light of his son and wash them clean, isn't it? And sometimes we can be envious of that. I went through a time of that, my own self, but I, that's really not my testimony. I was saved in church. Sometimes I wish my testimony were different. I mean, came to the step of the front of the church, recall an altar, you know, in Southern Baptist life in 1977 and gave my life to Christ along with other four other guys, all of whom are still walking the Lord, as far as I know. And sometimes I wish it were that, you know, the, the testimony looks good on TV, but that's not the testimony God has for me. And I've heard uh, some, some of you, we've talked about that. I mean, some of you grew up in church. Some of you didn't. Some of you don't remember a time when you didn't know Jesus. Some of you can give me the date when you were saved. I know the date when I was saved. Some of you have no idea. You just know you're saved, and that's, and that's good enough, right? That, I don't think you have to know that or need to know that. I think we can fixate too much on that, as a matter of fact. We used to sing, church growing up, we'd sing, uh, glory, 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 somebody touched me. Glory, 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 somebody touched me. It was on a Monday. And what would you do, Kathy, when you, if it was your day, what would you do? Stand up, right? See Doug and Kathy shaking their heads. They grew up very similar. You'd stand up. Glory was on. Of course, Sunday we'd all stand. You know, the whole building we said it was on a Sunday because there wasn't any lost people there. Because if you didn't stand up, somebody come evangelize you. So you'd stand up, right? You didn't want to be bothered. You'd be hassled. Let some guy they kick him, wake him up, say stand up. You don't want to be evangelized. That's it. But I don't think you. And I know it was on a Sunday. Somebody touched me, and it was the hand of the Lord. You may not know, and that's just fine. Because we see variety here with Philip and Nathaniel. Very different, right? Very different than what we saw last week. Very different. I mean, Jesus said to Philip, follow me, and he went. Nathaniel, he, he interacted. It was more of a relational kind of thing with Nathaniel, right? Very different. And he showed a little maybe skepticism, or maybe like, are you really him? Let me see some, you know. And so very different testimonies. Of course, there's also similarities in these early conversions. It's true that every salvation experience of Christ is unique, but there's similarities too. And, and I mean, Jesus said to every one of you at some point, somehow follow me and you followed him, right? You came after him. You couldn't ultimately resist. You may have resisted for a while. You can't ultimately resist the Holy Spirit if you are God's elect. So let's take that off the table right now. Because God gets what God wants every single time. God always wins. Every time, and I'm glad he does. I'm glad he can break down my resistance, my free will. Are you? I'm glad he resisted. He broke down my resistance. He wasn't a gentleman, as one televangelist says. My God is a gentleman. He would never choose you and invade your privacy. Well, first of all, there is no privacy. And secondly, I'm glad he invaded it if there was, right? If he came and saved me. And if he had to drag me kicking and screaming into his kingdom and I avoided hell and God's judgment, God's wrath, praise God for that. It's not the way God converts us, of course. He gives us faith, makes us willing to believe, but the circumstances are often different. So there's no one-size-fits-all testimony as to how you came to Christ from a temporal perspective. 
And there's no one size fits all for it. Evangelism. We get all nervous about evangelism. I haven't memorized evangelism explosion or sharing your faith without fear. I've not evangelized one of the, or memorized one of those outlines. What am I to do? Well, you can't share the gospel. That's for sure, right? We don't want you out there trying to tell people the truth of Jesus. Goodness, you've not learned one of these programs. I'm not a big fan of the programs. They can be helpful. I'm not putting them all down. Evangelism Explosion, I learned that, training that years ago. It's helped me for some things, but really, uh, you know, it, it just depends on the person, right, and the, the circumstance. And I think it's better if you get to know people, to actually get to know people instead of a hit and run, door to door. You know, that's not... There's so many people going door to door for so many bad reasons now. People don't answer their door. We learned that the hard way a, few, a couple of years ago, didn't we? we just, that's why we put the bags and the door knockers, just knock the door. Here's a Bible. You know, you can use it. And we'll just over here. <laughs> you want us, our phone number's on there. But it's better to build relationships with people, isn't it? Because the people I've led to Christ in my life, it's almost always been because we got to know each other. And they trusted me at a level and then we talked about the gospel so I think it's best to do it that way you know and I think we see that here Jesus is more relational but again it's not uniform and I think we need to move away from that I mean to be a Christian is to follow Christ to follow Jesus Christ to have uh, there's no Christianity without personal discipleship with Jesus Jesus is doing what discipling these men this is a model there's no follower no followership without discipleship impossible far too many people today give scant to no evidence that they are truly in Christ I mean believers say they're Christians or so called believers because they've had some kind of intense emotional experience or maybe they grew up in church or uh, they were catechized or they responded to an altar call long ago and I think I did and I was saved through that and many, I know that's a flawed, uh, in, in many respects a flawed methodology but I mean I think lots of people have been saved at Billy Graham Crusades and I think I was really saved there at the front of Ivy Log Baptist Church that day in 1977 in March. Not, but, but a true follower of Christ will follow Christ. Lordship salvation, remember that controversy? Jesus is not just your Savior. He is your Lord. You don't make him Lord. He is both your Savior and your Lord. It's not a crisis experience where you make him Lord and I was walking my own way and now I'm walking. No, 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 no. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. That's another sermon for another time. But it's clear from how Jesus dealt with these first five disciples that he ministers to every soul based on his intimate divine knowledge of each one. And each disciple can expect personal ministry that they need from him. And you can too. Jesus ministers to you, yes, corporately, but individually. You'll get just what you need from walking with Jesus daily. You. Ordinary you. Right? I mean, it's easy to feel lost in the crowd as a Christian. But if Jesus, but Jesus knows you intimately, and if you come to him, you will find a good shepherd who will lead your soul to, uh, to green pastures besides still waters as if you're the only person under his care. His word will speak to you according to your real and personal needs. And by God's spirit, Christ will give individual attention to you. He did it to these men, right? He spent time with all of them and he does you anytime, not just, okay, I'm done with Doug. Now I'm gonna go to Jeff. Wait a minute, Jeff, I'm talking to Doug. No, 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 any moment, right? Right now, right now. So as we conclude, this is the kind of people God builds his church on. This is what he does, right? I mean, I think it's easy to imagine in our world today that if Christ had really wanted his message to have maximum impact, he would have played on his popularity or his personality more effectively, right? He would exploit his fame. He toned down the rhetoric, toned down the theology, man. Theology divides. You've heard people say that, right? There is no, but there is no Christianity without theology. Even that, all that's theological. Those are theological statements, right? Jesus could have done better, the world would say. Kept those controversies at bay. Could have employed whatever strategies he could use to maximize the crowd, build the crowd, right? Get that crowd there. But he didn't do that. He did the opposite. Think about what he's going on to say. He was very confrontational. He says a lot of hard things in John chapter 6. And what happens? It says, and some of them walked with him no more. And you're going to see that in church. And you've no doubt seen that in church. I know I have. Lots of people who I went to church with years ago, 
they're nowhere to be found today, right? They follow him no more. Things got hard. The word got hard. They were under conviction. They couldn't, they, they loved their pet sins more than they loved Christ. They worshiped idols uh, and they, they, went, they went after the world. But Jesus' disciples, they were 12 perfectly ordinary, unexceptional men because Christ's strategy for advancing his kingdom hinged on those 12 men rather than a display of his power or the clamoring multitudes. None of that. Why? Well, Scripture is clear about this. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. I've got several verses, but I'm just going to read this one. Paul says this. We have this treasure, gospel treasure. He's speaking of ministry here. But this applies to all of us. We have this treasure in jars of clay, clay pots, ordinary crockery, Walmart, China. This gospel, he's put it in us. Ordinary ministers, ordinary Christians. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God will save people when you evangelize through your witness not because of you, but because of him. So we go boldly, we evangelize boldly, knowing that his word is enough. And that your presence, your willingness to be used as an ordinary vessel, as a clay pot for his glory, it's enough. It's enough. God does this for one simple reason, so that he may get all the glory. I mean, this is consistent with how he redeemed us. Think of the weakness of the seeming weakness of the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, before the, the, the verses we had earlier, for the word of the cross is what? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. A crucified hero, he died. Are you crazy? But we know the rest of the story, don't we? He rose again. The word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. It's how you're saved it's how you're being saved and how you're sanctified by the power of God. Not your power, not your morality, not your piety. The power of God. That's why he does it. Ms. Paul says something similar about our resurrection bodies. Is our natural bodies sown in weakness, they died and raised, raised in power, raised new bodies, raised in glorified bodies, right? Weakness, our weakness and God's strength. Okay, let's close with this. Let's read 1 Corinthians 1.26, again, think about this. Just reflect on this. Put it on the board. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, not many of you, not many of your leaders, none of your leaders, are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, once you love it, it says, but God, all through the New Testament, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Take this home today. God will use even you to build his kingdom. God will use even this church to build his kingdom. Now, I'm just going to talk to us now as family for just about 45 seconds here. I am well aware, well aware that our church is quite a bit smaller right now than it was one year ago. I'm aware of that. I've noticed. Doug has noticed. Clay has noticed. We've noticed. There's some people, they've gone out from us. We know that. And it's easy, it would be easy to think, well, you know, this church, how can God ever use a church so small and that appears to be struggling? And I would argue we're not struggling. It'd be easy to argue that, wouldn't it? And say, you know, maybe we need to think about something else because, you know, this is just small and kind of pathetic. But who are these disciples? Who is this band? They were kind of small and kind of pathetic, weren't they? Now, I'm not saying it's more virtuous to have a small church. Don't get me wrong. There's some larger churches in this town that are awesome and God's used them mightily. I'm not saying that. I love them. Pastored by dear friends of mine and filled with godly people. Praise God for that. But I'm saying is don't sleep on this church. Don't give up. Don't give up on us. <laughs> this is how God works, right? 
I mean, God purges his church, he brings, and, and he, as long as we're being faithful, we can't, we can't worry too much about numbers. But I know we do. But we're weak. Yes, we're weak. And your elders, are we weak? Oh, you better know it. But we're well aware of that. But it's out of that weakness God brings strength. I think we're well positioned to do ministry. And God will take, bring in and out who he needs and who he wants. Let's just, let's, let's not forget that God builds his church. And he, he does all these, these machinations. And I need to hear this too, by the way. He, he, he does all this according to his purposes and for his glory. We read it right here, right? Because we're clay pots. It is this glorious gospel he puts in us and in a church like ours that does the work through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, this, it's this powerful gospel through these weak people through weak churches just like ours. And by the way, the larger churches, they're weak too. And they realize it. Oh, the good ones. There's the power of God working in us and through us. We have this treasure in jars of clay, clay pots, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's chew on that this week and apply it to our lives both corporately and individually, and praise him for the work he does in us and through us. And never, ever, ever, ever despise that. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded that you would call the likes of us into your kingdom, that you would call the likes of us into ministry, that you would build your church, that you would, we would consider ourselves a, a church of the living God, I pray, Lord, we would not be too fond of the world's power and seeking power the way the world accounts it. For Father, we know your accounting system is different. We see that in these weak disciples you call, Lord, these men who are sinful and imperfect, and God, we see that in us. So God, I pray that this would not in any way discourage us, but encourage us, God. My intent in this sermon is to encourage this body. And I pray they leave here encouraged that, yes, they are weak and they know they're weak, but you are strong because you work through weak clay pots to do your, to build your kingdom. So God, encourage us, strengthen us, give us joy, give us joy whether we're large or whether we're small, whether we're, we're having great impact on the kingdom seemingly or not. Help us to be faithful with this gospel. Faithfulness, that is the measure, God. And give us grace to look, to, as William Carey put it, to expect great things and attempt great things, knowing this is how you work for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, and for his glory we pray. Amen.